Hi, it's Grace from the CSC, and welcome to the Hashtag Finance Podcast. I'm here today with Kim Rivers, CEO of Truly. Um, and so I just wanted to start off the podcast by asking you um, kind of what, um, as a female in cannabis, what advice can you offer other women looking to become um, leaders in the cannabis industry? So I would say just uh, to take your seat at the table. Uh, that's that's what I, I say in general when asked about w- women and female entrepreneurship. Um, I think so often that we as women sometimes have a tendency to not speak up and speak out. And uh, really, I think that, you know, this industry, like many others, but this industry particularly because of the high rate of growth and just the numerous opportunities, and also because there is, um, and there, I believe, and strongly, it's important uh, part of the industry to have a level of compassion. And I believe as females, um, oftentimes we we have right in our tapped in a little bit more um, specifically to that compassionate element, which I believe is is very important in this space. Oh, that's great. Um, and so, does do you think that the cannabis industry is as welcoming as it appears to be, kind of in the news? Mm. Uh, I think that when you're talking about fast growing, particularly public public companies, um, I can say that um, I would I would like to see more women uh, when I attend conferences or when I'm on panels um, it does seem that I am you know one of the only or one of the few women in a, in a sea of in a sea of gray suits so uh, while I think that certainly if you if you think about um, perhaps at more of the local level or more of the um, cottage industry um, aspect of cannabis, um, you tend to see perhaps some more, you know, more diversity. I think that unfortunately, as an industry, we we are falling behind um, as uh, those companies grow and progress um, to uh, again a publicly listed, the publicly listed level. Okay, great. And why do you think that we're fa- that they're falling behind? Uh, I think that it's it's just um, the nature of um, uh, you know, in in general, and I think that it's it's cannabis is at some point becomes I don't want to say no different because of course every industry has its own differences, uh, but um, I think that you know it's a self fulfilling prophecy, right? So um, as women or um, people of color, for example, if if there's not a, as big of a pool of us who have been involved in public companies who have been involved in um, perhaps at the leadership level. Um, on boards, um, and so, uh, you know, as an example, in TrueLeave, we have a very specific part of our um, culture is to encourage uh, minority employment, and so that is part of who we are, and we've been very purposeful about it because one of um, one of our goals, one of my goals personally, is to uh, prove that um, you can be a successful, profit-driven company um, with inclusion. And that doesn't have to be an aside. It can be part of who you are as a core, and uh, and you can you can you know blow it out of the charts with respect to success. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that as more companies um, are able to post um, profitability, then it can um, those can be models for for other companies to perhaps look at. And um, I personally love that uh, the social equity uh, conversation is bubbling up, um, at least at some of the state levels, because I think it is a very important part of our industry. And do you think that, um, is this recently that that conversation has been brought up? Yes, I believe so. And what Um, do you think is influencing that conversation? 
Uh, I think that, you know, folks are um, certainly um, who have, you know, been disenfranchised are certainly making their voices heard, which I think is is great. Um, I also think that there is, um, you know, a movement in, in the U.S. right now um, that's, that's been that's been happening. And a lot of that has to do with national politics, which we don't have to get into. But, um, you know, so I think that I think that folks are feeling. Uh, a bit frustrated and a little bit more empowered to, to point out those to point out those and, and look our industry um, we, we should have we should have accountability for that right I mean we've got we're in an industry where folks you know lost their freedom and spent time in prison and um, and and so you know absolutely we have those of us that are successful in this industry I believe have a responsibility um, it's an interesting, to, to interesting it way of looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so just going back on the public, um, you know, the public side. So what was the strategy behind truly going public? So uh, the strategy was, was very simple. It's that we had uh, successfully penetrated the market in Florida and built our brand in Florida. And uh, we were ready to not only continue that in a meaningful way and knew that we had other public companies entering our market. And so we needed to, you know, to make sure that we could we could compete there, but also to, to take that experience and, and mimic it in other in other states. And so we were ready to really um, become a true multi-state operator, um, different from a multi-state aggregator, multi-state operator. And so, so what is the difference there? Uh, I think that there are there's strategies, right, that, you know, and we hear it, that's a land grab and we're just going to put pins on a map and grab assets whenever we can. But um, I think it's questionable in terms of whether or not there's true intentional brand building going on in the space. Um, and so, and really true operational expertise. And uh, so we first uh, took a little different approach. We wanted to, to build out and make sure that we could truly penetrate a market and build the systems and, and, and all of the back, back of house um, operations, operational expertise that's needed um, before, we, before we kind of lifted our head and said, okay, um, we're ready to take the show on the road. And so that was, the, uh, that was the genesis of us deciding to go public. Oh, that's great. Um, and so it's been successful this far. I mean, you guys have done um, really well. And I mean, I really enjoyed it. I did extensive research on you. And, um, you know, it just sounds like you guys really have that differentiating factor as a cannabis company because, you know, it says it in your name. You guys are believers. You're, you're, you call your customers um, true leavers, which yep. I think is super cute. I love that. <laughs> uh, did you come up with that? Do you work in the branding side of things? I, I have. I, I'm a little passionate about marketing. So, oh, um, yeah, the true leave name came at about 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> nice. When we were. Um, as all good names do. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, of course, you know, you look back and you look at all the names that you didn't pick and you say, oh, my gosh, thank goodness, right? <laughs> um, it's pretty funny. But, um, but, but and you're absolutely right. We are we are huge huge believers, and um, we look to create authentic relationships with with our customers, and so that's the kind of the truth part of it. And yeah. um, and so yeah, I appreciate you recognizing that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and so, what would you say that that's a differentiating factor for um, for TrueLeaf? Absolutely. So I think that again, um, the ability to uh, to build um, you know two way relationships. So um, you know I think that's what makes a lot of brands great is that um, the customer feels connected um, to the brand and so developing a culture around that which you know is done be for a number of a num through a number of ways and that really is our competitive advantage is you know we have consistent in-store experiences you're going to have the same experience when you go into the store in Miami that you will when you go into the store in Tallahassee uh, product variety 
Um, product quality, we stand behind our products. Um, we accept returns, no questions asked. That's mm -hmm. very unusual in the cannabis space. Um, but our return rate is less than 2%. Yep. So it's it's why wouldn't you do that again to make sure that that relationship is there with your customer. And then, um, and then you know, finally, um, just having the quality of people. So giving folks um, an opportunity to grow within our company, to uh, feel like they're a part of and connected to our company is very important. That's good. Um, and so I just want to draw back to the flower yeah. um, and how you kind of were the first cannabis, or you're the only cannabis company that can sell flower in we're Florida. We're not the only. Oh, not uh, the we only. We were the okay. first. Okay, We first. were the first. Okay. Yes, yes. Um, so important distinction for okay. um, any of our competitors who are listening. <laughs> um, so no, we were the first. And, okay. um, and now there are three companies that are selling smokable flower. It was a huge, uh, we believe, game changer in, in our market in Florida. Um, we sort of, as you know, I won't, I won't knock on my state, but the things a little, a little maybe in reverse, um, and that concentrate and oil products have been selling now for over two years. Um, we've been selling vaporized flour now for a year, um, but smokable flour was specifically prohibited under um, our statute. And so the governor uh, basically came out and said, this is against the Constitution. You know, I'm dropping the gauntlet. Um, March 15th, legislature, you have to, to pass this law. And so they did. Um, we had our stores fully stocked on March 15th. Um, the governor didn't sign the bill until March 18th, but we wow. were ready to go with those sales. So. Wow. That's, uh -huh. And so it was just because you asked. Really? Well, it was. Or you found that loophole that was like, okay, yeah. if I package it like this, yeah. Then well, we were just following the law, mm -hmm. and so um, you know, it's it's very straightforward. I mean, the the law was written um, with very specific um, requirements for packaging, very specific labeling requirements, and so we um, felt that we knew um, what they were what they were asking for. We filed our amendment um, as soon as the bill uh, passed. Mm -hmm. We filed an amendment for product approval with the Department of Health, um, and um, the product was approved. And and so, um, it's fast. you know, we, it was very, very fast. And, uh, you know, we've, we've been um, successful, I think, in our first-to-market strategy by, um, by of course, being, being aggressive and also planning ahead. So it's not only that we have smokable flour, but in Q1, we built out and have operational 126,000 additional square footage of cultivation to support smokable flour. So mm. in, in Florida and in most markets, supply chain management, which I know is not necessarily like a very exciting topic, but a supply chain management is, in my mind, one of the keys to success in this industry because, uh, and especially if you're planning to build a profitable business in this industry, because if you're retail only and you're in a wholesale market, if you don't have your supply chain really tightly managed, you're looking at really probably a best case scenario, 15% margin business. So um, it is, and, and you'll see when Trulieb goes into other states that we really are looking at um, one scale and to having that supply chain supply chain managed and, and with an end goal of making sure that our customers can have consistent high quality products, right. which is very important. And so now with all these different cannabis companies competing with each other, it's almost as if everyone should kind of find their place and work together to start a big operation. Is that kind of how you're how you're seeing it? Instead of instead of you know everybody kind of taking this different role, they they should find like their place within the sub supply chain instead of being the number one. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves, right? Yeah. And I think it really does depend. I mean, we've got basically the way I look at it, and the way I think, unfortunately for analysts, they have to look at it, which has been interesting. Is that it's not just one model mm -hmm. for the U.S. It's fifty models because you have fifty different sets of regulatory regimes, and so I think about it. You have fifty mini countries, right? That you have to understand what is allowed and not allowed within 
in that country. And so each market's going to be approached a little bit differently. But I think, again, you know, whether or not, you know, a company decides to own the supply chain, like from seed to sale, which we don't have a choice in Florida, that's what we have to do, and it's optional in other states, or whether or not they choose to work and have contractual relationships to have um, specific uh, terms outlined for uh, with other companies in the supply chain. Um, again, I think it's just really important that companies are cognizant and thinking about, um, especially companies that are getting started, that that supply chain uh, relationships are incredibly critical. Yeah. And so you're going into new markets now. I yeah. hear you're going into California and I think it's Massachusetts. Massachusetts, yeah. yeah. So you'll be there. And so how do you think, I mean, you, you built up that Florida brand. Yep. And would you say, I think that your success, um, a lot to do with your success is you're from Florida, right? So you know, and you've got that law degree as well to help you. So how are you going to build that same Florida success in the different states? Yeah, so um, so uh, that's, there's a lot in that question. Um, so, um, you know, I think I think one of the things is that because Florida is strictly vertically integrated, we've had to become and develop expertise in each part of that chain. So we have over 600,000 square feet of active grow. We have, um, we're shipping over 80,000 products per week in our 55,000 square feet production facility, um, over 170 SKUs that we manufacture. And then we have, of course, 27 at this point um, retail outlets. And so uh, we've had to develop expertise in each section of the chain. And so depending on the market we're going into, what's great is that we can take that expertise or pieces of that chain and, and apply it to that to the relevant market. And hmm. so I think that's, that's, that's number one. Number two, um, we recognize, right, that we're kind of going to be, from this point forward, the outsiders in markets that we're entering. So it's been really important for us to think about our branding strategy right and so um, in 2019 we had and we've been working on it actually at the end of 2018 our um, three-tier branding strategy so we took a page from Whole Foods it's very simple um, our truly brand is foundational brand that's our own house branded products that will be segmented into three parts new users everyday products and then specialty products um, that you maybe want to use in, with friends on a Friday night is how I think about it um, <laughs> and so uh, with that those are truly branded products similar to the 360 brand at Whole Foods. The next tier is having best in breed national brands available on our shelves. So we recently announced deals with Slang, uh, Binsk, Love's Oven. Slang's going to be in here this afternoon. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And so really what we feel are best in class brands that have been successful in highly competitive markets. So Very we're talking cool. about companies from California, Colorado. They've had to slug it out for a number of years, right? And they've and they've risen to the top. So that'll be our second, our second tier. And then finally, and this goes to your question, is really how do we develop quick relationships in a local market? So Whole Foods, when they go into a market, they actually have a local product fair. I really like this. I saw this yeah. in one of your interviews. Yeah, like, and they and they bring in basically yeah. they basically bring in local local um, local products and they uh, give them a chance to compete for shelf space. Yeah. And so what that does is a couple of things, and we've seen it. We launched our first local brand with Sunshine Cannabis in Florida, and it's amazing. I mean, they have you know a cult following. They're marketing um, True Leave all over the place, and it does a couple of things. All of a sudden, we have street cred that, quite frankly, we would never have as a bubble company. Yeah. Um, and we're able to, again, kind of break down that stigma of, oh, you're just a corporation. You're just big box cannabis moving into our backyard. Exactly. Um, and, and again, with a focus on how can we quickly develop 
authenticity. Because if we can get you into our store, um, our ability to connect with that person and to really create that, or how them, for them to experience that elevated level of service, um, we feel confident that we can keep their business. Yeah, that, well, that's really great. And then, and also that leads into my other question about your loyalty program. Mm-hmm. And I've just kind of been through the research I've done uh, in preparing for Weed Week. I've just kind of looked at a lot of these big cannabis plays now have um, loyalty programs. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, is the next leg up for cannabis companies um, the aggregation of data from customers? Mm. And where, if so, where will that data go? So we are a data-driven company. Um, We currently, one of my key executive team members is um, my chief information officer. And so, um, and we have to be data-driven because it informs what we make, how we make it, what's on the shelves where, Mm -hmm. um, how much of it, et cetera. Again, that whole supply chain management. So, um, and we're also interested in what what are customers responding to? Um, What do they like that we do? What don't they like? And so creating those feedback loops is critical. Um, and again, that goes back to the relationship and it being two-way and not one-way. Um, so data is very important to to us. Um, we do not and do have no plans to aggregate or sell data. We've actually been approached by some third-party companies mm-hmm, yeah. that want to offer us free services or want us to run this program or want us to use the software and really they're data ag companies. And so we're cognizant of it. I would encourage... Well, not just data ad, but I can just see um, healthcare professionals, right? Because they're turning the whole healthcare system, well, trying to, to AI. Yes. A lot of aspects to it. So it's yes. almost like if they can grab the data, yep. then they can repurpose it into AI. Would you ever do something like that? I, you would I never... Don't, I don't... I mean, I don't yeah. know. Um, all I know is that right now, especially in Florida, it's a medical market. It's HIPAA protected. You know, we're very recovering lawyer, right? Um, very cognizant of that. Of and so, um, you know, I think that there are good uses of data. And then I think that there are um, perhaps, you know, self-serving commercial uses of data. And mm-hmm. so being cognizant of, of where those lines are, and um, we've shied away from it to date just because uh, we don't have a clear view on exactly how it would be utilized. Yeah. I and mean, have you heard any kind of conversations from HIPAA or like any kind of, um, have they been approached yet by different cannabis companies that you're aware of? Not that, no. Okay. Not that I'm I'm aware of. Um, And so, um, I guess my other question as well is for medical cannabis, um, where do you see people who have to use medical cannabis in in the work? place? Like where, how are they going to be able to do that? Great question. Um, so in uh, the U.S., it's really employer specific, unless that state has passed a law that offers protection. And so um, generally speaking, though, in most states, Florida included, it really is up to the employer. Um, we are starting to see some movement there um, in, in terms of some businesses that are choosing to treat medical cannabis like any other um, prescription medication. So um, that if you if you test positive uh, for THC and you have your medical card, that isn't grounds for necessarily termination. However, there's, of course, no impairment on, on, on the job you know, uh, requirements. Mm-hmm. And so some companies are choosing are choosing to go that route. Mm-hmm. Other companies are, aren't, unfortunately, and, and it just is, is what it is. So, what companies um, aren't do you tend to find? Like, uh, government, for example. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah that's you know, fair. which is a, is, a, is, a, is a huge employer. Um, but, um, yeah, it does. It varies. It varies widely company to company. Yeah. And would you say that somebody from government, I mean, say they're dealing with back pain or something and they have to use cannabis. Would you say that that would be a deterrent of them, like, working in government? Like, they should know they shouldn't be... 
It really depends on the person, right? Yeah. I mean, so and how and how critical it is for their daily function. Um, yeah. and, and also, if you know, what we'll see is, you know, look, if folks are coming off of, for example, an opioid addiction or something like that, then really, you know, to and we've heard, I've heard this firsthand and had conversations. It, it becomes, you know, to them, it's a matter of life and death. So mm-hmm. they don't you know, exactly. It's, it's, and and yeah, the whole opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the next step for medical marijuana replacing opioids? There's definite movement. Um, I'm really um, excited about that movement because I think that it will not only from just a, a what I see on the front lines um, for how cannabis truly is changing people's lives, but also in what I hope to be an influx of research and data. Um, that that supports mm-hmm. um, the use of medical cannabis um, for a, a variety of, of reasons, and so um, obviously in the U.S. that's one of our biggest challenges is um, there isn't enough research. There is some research to be clear. Um, so I get I bristle a little bit when I hear oh, there's no research, and I'm like, mm, yeah, there's studies that have been done, mm-hmm. um, particularly in some of the western states where it has been legalized for a while, mm-hmm. but. Um, but you know, having some some really good thorough uh, studies um, that that can speak um, specifically to the effectiveness of cannabis as an opioid um, opioid alter- alternative, and we say alternative because it's not it's a important. Yeah, impo- yeah, it's important also that you know folks can't immediately transition. Yeah. You know, there's a process, and it was the patient. I think you in one of your interviews you had said there's not enough um, practitioners as there is patients, so they're waiting for their prescriptions to get medical marijuana and they just kind of turn to opioids because it's like the only thing that they can really help like ease their pain at the time right pain's critical right yeah and that's it it becomes urgent quickly yeah I mean if you're not sleeping and uh you know sleep and eat those are those are two primary human functions right Mm -hmm. and so if, if if one of those is off um you know as your primal kind of survival mechanism kicks in and so um yeah there was a while in Florida we've gotten much much better um, mm-hmm. but there was a while when the program first started that um, cards were taking you know upwards of three months to get and so if you have a terminal cancer patient for example and I, I'll never forget there were more than one episode of tears and <clears throat> um, just horrible horrible stories of folks who were not able to get relief prior to passing um, and and so thankfully the state was responsive and they um, and they've shortened that process now to inside a week so oh, wow. um, okay. it's been a great evolution of the pro- of the program in Florida um, we do still have challenges with um, the numbers of physicians versus the number of patients particularly now that we're seeing that patient growth spike as a result of smokable flour being allowed and so part of that is because you know it is still so specialized um, in Florida and the requirements for the physician to become um, not only able to uh, recommend but also there's a whole separate database they have to be trained on they mm-hmm. have they have to do it they can't have staff do it and so just from a practicality standpoint a lot of physicians that have a norm quote normal practice because um, the legislatures they're like well why aren't doctors just adding it to their regular practice I'm like well because you it's haven't integrated other, it into yeah. their normal sort of flow right yeah. and so it's um, a different animal it is yeah. it is and so that's something we've been really we've been talking about trying to raise awareness in hopes that um, at some point um, the legislature may step in and, and smooth some of that out. Great. Yeah. And so lastly, um, I just want to know kind of what was it about the cannabis industry that led you to want to leave law? And um, what what kind of, uh, and the second part to the question is what is the, um, 
What's the best story you've seen since you've been in cannabis? Oh, geez. Um, there's so many great stories. Um, <laughs> so I'm a recovering lawyer. Yeah. Um, and then I, I, in the middle there, kind of from, from leaving from leaving law, I had a middle middle life there where I was uh, an entrepreneur. And so um, I was involved in a, in a company that would do uh, hospitality, um, aggregation, um, repurpose, and then sales. So um, I just had an exit of a portfolio of um, hotels um, when I was approached uh, to get involved in the company that now is True Leaf, and that was in uh, 2014, I believe. Oh, wow. And um, you know, my answer immediately was, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so uh, we did a ton of diligence, traveled the country, um, went in a bunch of grows. At Were you West. kind of like, I don't know because it's marijuana, and you're well, like, so my, uh, I'm, listen, <laughs> my my dad's a police officer. Oh wow, <laughs> yeah, okay. was a police As officer for 20, really adds to the 25 <laughs> years. Yeah, in Jacksonville. And what does and he think of this now? No, like, he's, is he he's your whole family on, supportive of it. Yeah, okay. super on board. And my mom was an assistant principal of an elementary school. Oh, okay. wow. Okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you can imagine, <laughs> right? So I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and But, you know, did the research and um, realized um, what a phenomenal opportunity this this really was. And then I will say that I fell in love with the industry um, after we won our license, probably about six months in, when we were actually selling and, and interacting with patients. And when I started to realize, wow, not only is this an incredible business um, and I can see the growth and I can see the opportunity from that side of it this is a business that is uh, reaching people in a real way Helping and so people. I call that kind of a triple bottom line um, and it's it's really the only industry that I've ever seen like that um, so um, and I would say that you know um, one of my um, one of my favorite stories is um, it's really early on um, there's a grandmother um, who had a very rare condition and her eyes basically were swollen shut. She had she had face spasms, and she couldn't see. Um, and it had been like that for years. And uh, she started taking our products. And after I think it was three days, um, she literally could open her eyes. Oh, that's and so... um, her story was just like it was like Christmas morning. Wow. And um, so you know when we have an opportunity, and there's there's so many more um, aside from that, but um, just her her. She, and she loved a garden, so she was able to go out and, and work in her work in her yeah. garden. And so, um, and there's story after story like that um, yeah. that that we see. So when we open a store, I, I work the counter for a couple hours every every, every time. And so, I, I thankfully get get to experience a lot of those hugs and a lot of those thank yous. And I tell folks, cause people say, "Oh, that's so great of you that you work the counter." And I said, "Don't get it, don't get it twisted. That's yeah, not, that's not for them. That's not for me. looking for yeah the recognition. It's, it's, no, it's it's yeah. for me because that that well of um, love is is something." thing that look this job's this job gets hard it's yeah. you know it's a grind um it's i love it and it's an exciting grind but um you know when you have 419% re- re- growth you know year over year growth and revenue you're you're, you're busy, busy. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know it's it's an amazing business that um you're able to know that when things get hard or you know you have a tough day that um you can kind of and call back to those to those uh, to those interactions and yeah. um and really know that it's it's meaningful work that's excellent. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you've got a very busy schedule, and we appreciate the time to sit down oh, with you. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Hi, it's Grace from the CSC reminding you to make sure to follow us on social media for the latest updates on our listed companies as well as new listing alerts. For more in-depth content, be sure to pick up our free quarterly magazine, Public Entrepreneur, available online at thecsc.com.